Friends, would you open in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 15. When I read these verses to us, I want you to pay attention to every reference you hear to blood or to death or to sacrifice. Listen for those things as I read this passage. Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 15. Hear now God's word. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you bring this truth to bear in our hearts and in our minds that indeed without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins? Would you show us that more clearly? Would you show us your Son more clearly? We ask in his name. Amen. Well, friends, today we're going to talk about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, I realize that's a massive mouthful. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement, you may know that doctrine, you may know that truth, even if you don't know it by that title. And as we talk today, that's going to be made more clear. But before we talk about substitutionary atonement, I want you to hear the importance, the stress laid on it by a famous 19th century preacher. His name was Charles Spurgeon, and this is what he said about this doctrine. The heart of the gospel is redemption, and the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel in whatever else they may be mistaken, but they who preach not the atonement, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message." Do you hear what Spurgeon is saying? He's saying there's actually a lot of leeway in the Christian life and in Christian doctrine. There's, there's a bunch of things that we can kind of fumble and misinterpret and slip up on and take a different perspective on, but this is not one of those things. When we talk about substitutionary atonement, what it is that Jesus achieves on the cross, we talk about the heart and soul of the good news of the gospel. We want to define it, we want to understand it, but we can't get to the good news of the gospel in our passage without first understanding the bad news of sin and judgment. Now in the verses we just read, this is never explicitly stated, but you have this massive assumption running throughout this entire passage that number one, sin exists in all of us and it separates us from God, and number two, that there is wrath of God and judgment towards that sin and towards that offense against him. 
We heard about sin in our passage. We read the words sin and transgressions. We were reminded of the tabernacle and the sacrifices, which we've been speaking week to week, have been put in place to address the issue of sin in us. And so clearly the writer to the Hebrews, he agrees with the rest of the Bible that indeed sin separates us from God. But he doesn't only say that. He implies that sin deserves the judgment and the wrath of God. There's no explicit reference to that. That's going to come later in our passage, what we're going to read next week. But instead, that's assumed throughout the verses I read because of how many references we hear to blood and death. Chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, is a dramatic chapter. It's a bloody chapter. It's a chapter that is full of carnage, and that is implying the wrath of God towards our sin. Look at some of these references. In this chapter alone, chapter 9 alone, there are four references to death. There are 11 references to sacrifice, and there are 12 references to blood. Here are some of them. Verse 15, a death has occurred. Verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You can't make sense of a chapter worth of bleeding and dying as the way God inaugurates his first covenant and now his new covenant in Christ unless you take a long, hard look at God's hatred of and offense toward sin. Now, friends, you and I know that there are very few places left in the world and maybe even in the church that we can have an honest conversation with each other about God's holy, righteous wrath towards sin. We don't speak about that. That's extremely uncomfortable. That's politically incorrect. We all have friends outside the church and inside the church to whom we could go and say, I'm struggling with such and such, and they'll pat us on the back and they'll laugh and they'll say, you know what, me too. And I think what we might perceive as a graciousness and an acceptance of our sin is, in many instances, a wholesale rejection of the wrath of God toward our sin. We don't need to go any further than the book of Hebrews itself to see our standing before God. We're going to read this verse next week, chapter 9, verse 27, which says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment for all humanity is as inescapable as death. As surely as we will die, we will stand in judgment. Chapter 4, verse 13, it expounds on this even more. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. There's no conversation with the Apostle Peter at the pearly gates. When we die, we are ushered into God's perfect, holy presence, and we are stripped of all defenses and excuses and misunderstandings and hedging of our bets, and we are made to answer for every thought and every word and every deed we have done in the body. That's as inescapable as death is for us. Finally, we hear in chapter 10, verse 31, 
It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As much as the prophets had tried, as much as the apostles had tried, as much as Jesus himself had tried, from cover to cover, the Bible cannot capture the horror that is in store for the person who has defied their maker. By abandoning God, God abandons that person to an eternal lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. The judgment of sin is so great because God is so great and he is just and he is true and he will satisfy his justice for the sin against him. You can't understand the atonement unless you embrace these truths. We can't even talk about and define these things unless we will come face to face with sin and with judgment. If you reject that God is perfect and he's holy and he's worthy of every ounce of worship, if you reject the idea that we as human beings have rebelled against him and we withhold our worship from him and in fact we point that worship to ourselves and to other things and if you reject the fact that God will hold humanity accountable for the affront, then the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is going to be meaningless to you. It it won't mean anything. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, that's a historical event. You can find eyewitnesses' accounts of this, and it will mean many things to many people, but if you don't understand sin and wrath and judgment, it will not mean the most important thing of all. Jesus' death on the cross is a great act of defiance to political structures of injustice. It is. Jesus' death on the cross is a shot across the bow of demonic powers and principalities. It's the world's most beautiful picture of self-sacrificing love. It is the most preeminent example anyone could ever possibly follow. It is all those things, and it is not less than those things, but it is so much more than those things. If that's all we get to of Jesus as an example for us, then we have done what Spurgeon warned that we will do. We have missed the soul and the substance of the gospel. We have not made the most important connection that can be made in the cross, and that is this, that Jesus' perfect life and death is an offering to God to take away our sin and to reconcile us, to make us right with him. If we get that, if we're willing to embrace that and understand sin and understand judgment for sin, we're ready to hear a definition for substitutionary atonement. When we use that large phrase, we're just using those two words, substitutionary, substitute, someone standing in somebody's place. Atonement is to make a covering, it's to reconcile, it's to make someone right with another person. And so substitutionary atonement means someone stands in our stead to make us right. If you want to stand back and expand that in the scripture, we would say this that God lovingly and he willingly sent his son who gladly stood in our place to carry our sin, to bear the awful judgment for it, to completely and wholly and fully satisfy the wrath of God so that we can stand as clean worshipers of him. 
That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. God, he lovingly and he willingly sent his son who gladly stood in our place to carry our sin, to bear the judgment for that sin, to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can stand clean to worship him. Jesus is our substitute. We read in the book of Hebrews that we were destined to stand naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has now laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Every sin, every transgression, Every murmur of discontentment, every thankless start to a day, every nursed jealousy or greed, every idolatry, every second look of lust, every lost temper, all self-loathing, each and every harsh word, hateful thought, hypocrisy, half-hearted act of religious lip service, every sin we have committed from our birth until our dying day, the entirety of it is taken from us and it is placed squarely on the shoulders of Jesus to answer in our stead for our sin. And Hebrews chapter 9 says, there must be blood. There must be judgment for that sin. If God is pure, purity must reign in his presence. If God is just, his justice must be satisfied. If God hates sin, that hatred must be answered. There must be blood for sin. Where we were bracing for the terror of falling into the hands of the living God, Jesus For the joy set before him, he endured those hands. Jesus on the cross, he absorbed God's anger and his wrath for sin, and he satisfied God's justice completely and wholly. That's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You know, I've heard dozens of illustrations for this doctrine, but they all seem a little bit hokey after you've touched the divine. I've heard people say, imagine you came home one day and the police came to your door and they said, you didn't know it, but you hit a pedestrian and killed him and we were going to arrest you and throw you in prison for life. But your neighbor stepped up and said that they would take the rap for that and go to prison and now you're free. They're your substitute. I I fail to see how that improves on the doctrine of what we just said. In fact, I was going to tell you a dramatic story of when I was in high school. True story, 17 years old. I was at a party. I was selling drugs, weed and ecstasy, and the police came, busted the party, gathered us in a living room. I had a pocket full of drugs, and they said, we're going to either arrest everybody in the room or we're going to arrest one of you. And my friend stands up and says, you can arrest me. He goes off to prison, I go free, and it was forever embedded in my mind as an incredible act of love and service. But I I fail to see how even that improves on the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. I'm going to spare you of those illustrations and instead get to the fruit of what is won in our passage in a substitute's suffering. Verse 15 Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions. Verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Death and blood, it wins redemption and forgiveness. Friend, 
It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It doesn't matter what's even going on in your mind. This offer is available to you now. If you will acknowledge that your sin is what God says it is, that it's rebellion against a holy God, that you withhold worship from the one to whom all worship and every breath is due, if you will agree with that and see yourself helpless in his sight and doomed to endure the judgment that will come at death, the good news of the gospel is for you. Believe that God loves you and that he has sent his son Jesus for you, that Jesus offers to stand in your stead, that when he goes to the cross, he bears the entire weight of your sin and satisfies the justice of God so that you might be clean and might be made right with God. That's the gospel, and it is free and available to anyone today who will confess their sins and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. Christian, if you've done that, if you have trusted that, if you've believed that, if you're walking in fits and starts in that, I want to ask you if you're embracing the joy and the happiness that is in Jesus as your substitute. Or are you beginning to internalize that judgment in your own heart? Do you beat yourself up? Do you despise yourself? Do you condemn yourself? Do you withhold happiness and joy from yourself because of what you've done? Do you say to yourself, after I've done all of these things, I can't possibly experience the fruit and the joy that is in Christ? Do you do that? Or do you fear that that judgment is coming from God himself? Are you cautious when you approach God? Do you sense in God any kind of displeasure with you? Are you looking in your life when bad things happen to you for the heavy hand of God? Is this God judging you and getting back at you for the things you've done when you experience hardship in your life? Are you cautious in what you ask of God because you'll only ask things in proportion to how obedient you have been to God in this past week? If you're doing that, you're not enjoying the full and joyful reality that Jesus is your substitute, that the wrath and displeasure and disappointment of God has been completely and wholly satisfied, and you stand as righteous in his sight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us hands of faith to hold this doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Let us believe that Jesus has borne the weight of our sin and that we stand righteous in your sight. Would you give us the joy and the happiness in that we ask in Jesus' name, amen.